T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, welcome back. It's Hardline. We have uh, Congressman Chris Collins in studio. The number to call in, uh, 803-0930, star 930. If you're a Republican, 644-9875. If you're a Democrat, and uh, if you got a good call, we'll take it. Uh, if it's a bad call, we're not going to take it. That's just the way we do. It's, it's our choice. Dr. Jacob Nyheisel from the University of Buffalo. He represents the uh, academia of the political world at the School of Political Science as associate professor. And the, I'm the, yeah, and I'm the opposite <laughs> uh, of that. Congressman Chris Collins, New York 27. Hey, thank it's you. It's always good to be with you and Jake as well. We hadn't met before, but uh, happy to Great join to meet you, Congressman. All right. So first things first, I don't think it's any surprise uh, that you are going to support uh, bo- tough border security. Yeah, David, I mean, this is a both a security crisis and a humanitarian crisis. It's very different today. If you look back uh, in the past, it was always single males showing up at the border Uh, to come into this country to work on our dairy farms and pick our crops looking for work and making money here and sending the money home. That was the the demographic that was coming across the border. Today, and many of them from Mexico, and if they were apprehended, we'd send them back to Mexico. The demographic today are 70%, 75% family units and unaccompanied minors from Central America. And there is a loophole, and it's a doozy. The loophole is if they're from Central America and they're apprehended, they cannot be sent back to Central America. We have to put them in front of a judge, and right now there's 800,000 cases awaiting adjudication. 800,000? 800,000 That's not an exaggeration. So so these folks are released into our society, and they know it. So the nuance of Central America is very different than Mexico, but then also on the humanitarian side, they're paying what they call coyotes, to get them from Central America through Mexico into the U.S., one-third of the women are reporting that they've been sexually abused during this trek. And if that's not a humanitarian crisis, I don't know what it is. And some of these young kids and others who are traveling with adults, they are not their parents. They're going to be sold into the sex trade. That, again, is a humanitarian crisis that befuddles me how it is the Democrats are not willing to acknowledge that humanitarian crisis. MS-13, which, by the way, is operating in Buffalo, they are trying to get inside those groups and kind of mingle in and to get into our country. Of course they are. So those who are saying, and I heard some folks yesterday on the Democrat side saying, these are just individuals seeking asylum. Well, okay, let's look at that data point. Mexico has offered them all asylum as they cross the southern border of Mexico. They said, if you're being politically persecuted, we're here for you. You can get asylum in Mexico. And they're all declining it because they're not really legitimate asylum seekers. Well, you would, as a matter of fact, that's international law, that if one country offers you asylum from what you're escaping, you can't just say no. No, I want this other country. This other, yeah. Well, the other other data point, and I've got this sign in my office, and God we trust all others bring data. Well, here's the data point. 90% plus of those who do get into the U.S. to seek asylum 
they don't have a legitimate claim. They're denied. So 90-plus percent don't qualify for asylum. Not being able to find a job is not a reason to And let's to face sign it, they're, a, that's asylum. what they're here for. They, they, there is very little economic opportunity. You can understand where they're saying, if I can get to America, I'll do anything I can to get to America because any job, whatever it would be, is better than no job wherever they are. So it's not that they're seeking asylum for, for persecution from their government, fear for their life. They want a job. Well, we have a legal immigration system, and that system has, you know, we let a million people, immigrants in per year. They may wait five or six years. These are folks jumping to the front of the line, taking advantage of the loophole from Central America that we should plug. The Democrats won't let us fix that particular uh, immigration loophole. So they are released, and we say we'll see you in five or six years. Uh, hope you show up. They don't show up. So, so let me let me ask you, Congressman Collins, if if we get to uh, national emergencies declared by the president, and, and now we're saying that this is such a controversial, we got you know Maxine Waters is saying that people should run to the streets and protest this thing. I, I mean, again, what about the Sierra Leone diamond crisis that Barack Obama brought our attention well, to? You know, Bro- David, these have been, there's been a, a plethora that no one cared about. There's been close to 60. Someone said 58. Someone else said 60. We're going to say, call it 60 emergency declarations by presidents since the 1970s when, when this came forward. Uh, it's not uncommon. Never been controversial before. Uh, this meets all the definitions of a national emergency, and it's not... The same old, same old, again, with the single Mexican males coming across to work on our dairy farms and pick crops. This is a whole different dynamic. And the abuse and the sex trafficking, and then we've got gang members like MS-13 trying to get in. Very different. You're, you're seeing, I mean, you're literally seeing people throwing their kids over the barriers. Uh, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. So... Uh, it is in the president's prerogative. And it's by, by always way, been upheld to declare a national emergency. We don't even know if these are the biological parents of these kids. In many cases, uh, they're not. Because you know that you're going to get a pass if you have a kid with you. You're going to get through the border. Oh, yeah. No, these are made-up family units because that's how, how they're doing it. So now you get down to a big difference. People are saying, oh, my, uh, when Obama declared a national emergency back in 2014 related to the immigrants, uh, you know, he was criticized by Trump. This was an illegal action and the like. Well, let's remember, Obama was working overtime to subvert our laws and passed, you know, took executive action to keep illegal immigrants, illegal aliens, to keep them in this country uh, against the laws of our land. That's what he was doing. Trump, on the other hand, his emergency declaration is to keep illegal aliens out of our country and to support our laws. For people to say there's any comparison to one president saying our laws don't matter and I'm going to take executive action to keep the illegal aliens here and to handcuff ICE and Border Patrol so they can't even apprehend them, to another president who says we're a nation of laws, we have laws that govern immigration, and I want to get existing illegal aliens out of here for people on the Democrat side to compare those two just shows you. Well, you know, we hear the Democrats talking about Article 1. It's so important. As a member of Congress, you never got a chance to vote on Dreamers. That was something that was an edict from the executive branch that Barack Obama said. In an election year, in, in election 2012. Year, the, these individuals 
they they're not uh, they should be deported. This should happen, but I uh, from executive fiat will make the decision. Well, that, now we're hearing about Article One. Now we're hearing that Congress holds the purse. Congress has to make these decisions. Well, let, let's call out something else on that. When when Obama did the Dreamer the, the DACA Act, if you will, in 2012, that was in an election year. So he could own that demographic because he would pretend he was working for him, which begs the question, which no Democrat wants to answer. If they really cared, why didn't they do something in 2010, in 2000, uh, uh, 2009 and 10 when they had 60 senators? There was no threat of a filibuster. They had the House. They had the White House. They did nothing because this is the ultimate wedge issue. Well, well, let's let's be fair though, because if we and that is a valid point, by the way, because they had uh, the House uh, in 2009. They pushed Obamacare. They put their priorities out there. Nobody cared about Dreamers. The Democrats didn't. Matter of fact, the Democrats had a deal for the well, Dreamers. Let's say this: but they but didn't care about say? gun control. They didn't care about minimum true. wage, and they didn't care about Dreamers. There but are three you, wedge issues. They what, showed their hypocrisy. But what do you say to the Democrats that come back at you and say, why didn't the Republicans build this wall if it was so important when you had Speaker Ryan? The president was asked about that, and he said, I don't want to get into Speaker Ryan at all. But it was, a, it was apparent from that press conference that, you know, he was a little upset by leadership in the House of Representatives when the Republicans had the House that they didn't do enough. Well, no, because this was the issue. We don't have anything close to 60 senators. And so in the House, when we would debate a bill, we would say, can it pass in the Senate? Let, let's not waste our time like Nancy Pelosi's doing now. Let's not send a message bill over to the Senate that never sees the light of day. 60 senators are needed. The filibuster is still, unfortunately, alive and well. Many of us would say, let's get rid of it. It's, it's not in the Constitution. It's just a So a, those a bills the Republican Congress pushed over were all killed by the Schumer at, at they, the time, the cabal absolutely. in the Senate. And we knew when we'd say, well, Schumer's never going to let this happen. He has his... his uh, conference under his thumb just like and the proof is also in the putting the fact that this has already been voted on since 2006 there's been hundreds of millions of dollars put out there and and it's very different the the demographic of the people coming across today is not the demographic from three and four and five years ago we didn't have caravans we didn't have 10,000 people in a caravan trying to rush the wall. we we got to go to a break, Congressman Collins. When we come back, I want to talk about not only the, the changing demographics, but also the changing nature of elected freshmen coming to the oh, House wow. of Representatives <laughs> that you have to do. Uh, and Dr. Jacob Nyhausel, you'll get a chance to speak as well. When we come back, uh, we're going to take a quick break. More Hardline after this with Congressman Chris Collins in studio. All right, we're back. Uh, it's Hardline. We've got Congressman Chris Collins in studio. Dr. Jacob Nyheisel, uh, would you like to ask a question? Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd like to, to zoom out just a little bit uh, while still keeping the conversation about the, uh, the national emergency. Um, you know, my, my job as a professor is to sort of bring things back to fundamentals of government and, and the like. Are you worried at all about the precedent that this possibly sends? I mean, I know that national emergencies have been used in the past. However, we have Speaker Pelosi coming out and saying, look, uh, if you're going to do this here as a, something of an end around on Congress, here's a bunch of Democratic issues that we're going to push the next time we have a, a Democrat in the White House. So you worry this is uh, a fundamental shift in precedent at all? Or, or how do you, as a member of Congress, sort of jealously guard your powers of the purse? Well, Jake, I think it goes back that these emergency declarations have been made you know, since the 1970s, 58 to 60 different times. And, and the nuance here is the money that he will be uh, uh, 
using is money that has been allocated by Congress into those budget lines. Like Homeland right. Security has a $24 billion budget. A military construction. He, he's not going to take money out of the NIH for cancer research. Sure. He's not taking money out of the education department. These are dollars that have been, in fact, appropriated by Congress into the administration of which he is the CEO. And presidents back to, you know, the, the first days of this country have always had discretion within a, a particular department of redirecting monies. Like when Zika hit, uh, you know, the, the monies at the NIH, Zika didn't even exist, were redirected into the Zika crisis. This isn't uncommon. And what the Democrats seem to be, you know, trying to ignore is these funds would be used, uh, the funds that would be used would be, for instance, military construction, militaries on the border. And when the president says a secure border wall will help protect our military, make their job easier, I think there's a, a very direct connection. So I don't believe we are giving up our Article I powers. This money has been appropriated, but in some cases not spent. So he's going to redirect it in another way. Uh, that is, has always been the prerogative of a president. So what, what I don't do, think it's a precedent that we should be worried about at all. What do you say to when uh, Speaker Pelosi states that in the future, Democrats could use a national emergency to erode constitutional rights? I mean, I know what you're going to say to that because it's ridiculous on its premise. But when you think, well, we give this to uh, President Trump, what happens when a Democrat gets elected? What's your response to that? Well, I mean, just look what Obama did for <laughs> eight years. Jeez. For eight happened. years, he said, I got a pen and a phone. Right. He didn't do anything through Congress. Oh, my God. So th this is, I mean, the way our country is set up, we in Congress have have basically given the administration more and more powers year after year, decade after decade, eroding our own powers because we can't get stuff done. Hence, through rulemaking, interpretation of legislation uh, is how this government runs. So the, the power is in the administration. And the evidence of that is the last time Congress voted to go to war. Absolutely. It was World War II, and yet what have we done? We went to Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf, So the, the, the fact is the power does reside in the administration. The president of the United States can move monies around, can make executive decisions, can direct, because he's appointing all the cabinet heads, to do rulemaking like at HHS through Obamacare and whatever. Most of that was not legislated. It was rulemaking and the interpretation of the legislation administered by an appointee of Barack Obama. Now, Trump comes in, he goes, you know what? We're not going to use money to advertise an open enrollment period for Obamacare anymore. It wasn't in the legislation. It was an executive order. It was direction of Obama. So the fact is, it does matter who's in the White House. It matters a lot. And, and you know, right now, America decided that it would be Trump, the change agent, the person who is... Uh, respectful of the Constitution, as we've seen from the two Supreme Court judges that he's appointed, which is going to define ultimately his tenure as president, is his reshaping of the Supreme Court for the next four decades. Let, let me ask you, uh, if you were advising the president at the very beginning, would you have just told him to just do a national emergency at, at the beginning, not go through the, the shutdown, or was the shutdown important to get the Democrats to the point where they are now? Well, the, the absurdity of living in the twilight zone under Pelosi and, and Schumer, I don't think any of us expected that, because if you look at the history, we've always had a border barrier, wall, fence, call it what you will. It's never, ever, ever been controversial until Trump made it a center point of his election. 
and then he gets elected and, and they're trying to deny him the support of his base by saying, you promised a wall, we're not going to let you get it. This is all politics, and it's politics raising its ugly head. Two years out, we used to have a presidential election that ran 10 or 12 months, not 24 in this case. It's already started. In this yeah, case, 48. Campaign. It started the day after was the election. The, was the government shutdown a mistake? Would, should he have just done the national emergency to begin with? No, I think what he did, he, he set the stage for the national emergency. Uh, the shutdown was unfortunate. Uh, it did not need to happen, but Nancy Pelosi would not deal in any kind of good faith. When she said, I'm not going to give you even one dollar. Now, she, they finally gave him $1.4 billion, so how'd that work out for you, Nancy? Uh, she could have gotten, as a quid quo pro, she could have gotten protections and solutions for DACA and the Dreamers, which were offered, which shows she doesn't care about them. They're a wedge issue she likes politically. And ultimately, let's face it, in this bill, she got nothing. She could have had, she, she could have had anything she wanted to give them the $5.7 billion to avoid where we were and to avoid the shutdown. So, you know, maybe the Republicans wore the shutdown 60-40, but it wasn't 90-10 or anything like that because right. people saw through Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and their, their uh, uh, you know, stubbornness in, in politicizing this issue. So it did run its course. It was unfortunate. Certainly the TSA agents, uh, you know, that finally, thank God, have been paid. Um, what, do you, what do you think? There, there's also uh, they wanted the contractors paid. That's never happened in any shutdown where contractors would get payments that they missed out on. It was only for government employees. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it, it's in the private sector. If you're laid off, you, you don't ever get paid. People in construction go through this all the time. I know, it, it's no amazing how back. we are with twenty two trillion dollars of debt in, in America. But the fact is. The government employees were pawns in all of this, so I can understand the logic, and I voted to pay them. It wasn't, quote, their fault. Uh, but, yeah, you don't pay contractors for work that was not performed. Let me ask you something about you were a freshman once. Everyone's a, a, a freshman when you, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you were elected, you go back to that first time that you walked into the House of Representatives. Uh, you know, you're, it's an incredible honor. You're representing 700,000 constituents. You walk in there and you think, well, I want to make a splash. I want to do something for the people of Western New York. When you look <laughs> at this freshman class right now, have you ever seen anything like that in the time that you've been in where they are looking at a 28-year-old freshman from New York and she's basically the, you could argue that she's the uh, leader of the Democratic Party right now. Yeah, you could argue she's actually setting the agenda. But, you know, so let me give you a couple of funny asides. The viewers might appreciate this. The first time I went to the House floor to vote, I got lost. And I was on the wrong floor. I didn't know. I figured, you know, the main, the main chamber would be on the first floor. It's not. It's on the second floor. So I get on the elevator, and I press the button that's got the star on it. I mean, that's like you find in a lobby right. in a hotel. Right. And I get off, and I start wandering around. And there is no House floor. And, and the clock's ticking, and i got to go vote. And finally, I found like a couple of interns sitting there, and I know they probably are still telling the story. I went up to them and I said, "How do I find <laughs> the house floor?" Right. That's that's the one joke of being a freshman. The other one was the first time I went to a conference meeting. I went to the wrong conference. I went to the Democrat conference because a, a friend of mine that I had made as a freshman was a Democrat from Nevada. He were he and I were chatting in the the. the the groups split up, and I, he and I were just chatting away and looked up, and the room was empty except for the two of us. And he didn't know I was a Republican. I didn't know he was a Democrat. Somebody said I should have. But at any rate, he says, I know where we're going. I follow him in. 
I go into a room, I look around, I, you know, I'm brand new, I don't know that many people, I sit down, I have breakfast, and as, as we're finishing breakfast, Pelosi walks in and they give her a standing <laughs> ovation. Right. And I go, I am in the wrong room. Pelosi's so I try to sneak out, and they're taking videos of me. And they're, they're uh, posting them online, this idiot freshman Republican who's in the wrong conference. Unfortunately, they made me turn back in my policy papers. I probably could have gotten on a better committee if I you might have kept changed those the, policy papers. You might have changed the tide of the Democratic Party. But they party. posted it online, and I have to give my chief credit. He said, no, Collins knew exactly what he's doing. We have to work in a bipartisan way. What yeah. better way to do that than to introduce himself to the other side of the aisle? Right, right. But so anyway, as a freshman, you do stumble around. But you were ne- no one would have ever gone to you and said, uh, Congressman Collins, you've been here for six and a half minutes. What should the direction and the future of the Republican Party be? Well, the, uh, as we call her, she's the first member of Congress that I ever know has an acronym, AOC, which also stands for Architect of the Capitol. I can assure you they're not any too happy about that. But, you know, when she beat Joe Crowley, and let's face it, she didn't get many votes. I mean, this was a primary where, you know, maybe 60,000 people voted, or maybe not even that many, but she won. You know, she, she beat the guy that, that might well have been the speaker had he not lost that primary, which gave her a certain yeah. level of, of credibility right out of the gate. Uh, but she is an outspoken. Uh, she's articulate. And, uh, you know, you, you could argue that she has nothing, you know, behind what she says, and her green deal's like a third-grade term paper. Well, who, who beat Cantor in the primary? Well, exactly. No one knows who the <laughs> hell that was, and yet now we've elevated. Well, I mean, AOC she she does. St- I mean, she is our gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, and Representative Omar is another one. Right. That what what they've done, they're taking the oxygen out of the Democrat conference. And I can tell you, the other Democrats are not happy in the least when you've got AOC telling them we should get rid of all the cows in America because you know they're they produce methane when they do their business out in the field. Or airplanes, we shouldn't fly on airplanes and do away with all fossil fuel plants. It's like high-speed rail to Europe. Yeah, and then governor of California cancels his high-speed rail because it doesn't work. It's too expensive. So she, and now McConnell's going to put her third-grade term paper on the House floor to make Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Cory Booker and all the others vote for it or against it. You can't vote maybe. They're going to be for or against the third-grade term paper called the Green Deal. Uh, I don't know where they're going to go with it, because uh, that's how far left the Democrats have gone. And, and Omar is even worse. Her her uh, interrogation, if you will, of our new representative, uh, you know, envoy, if you will, to Venezuela. He's not an ambassador. What was insulting to, no. to, to think to imply that he well, not only imply, but at one point he said, "I'd like to answer that question." She goes, "It was not a question." And you lie. Oh, it's come like, on. You're telling me you've never accused any person that you've interviewed of genocide on the floor? You've never done that? It was just, it, it was a moment. An, yeah. a, a moment uh, that, that no one in America should be proud of. Uh, and, and, you know, Pelosi and company, uh, with her anti-Semitic comments, very reluctant to criticize her. She doesn't know what to do. No, and this is where they are right now. And the Democrats, let's face it, we had our Freedom Caucus. We still do. And that, that you know you know, bottled up some issues. They have the equivalent of three or four Freedom Caucuses. 
They've got the AOC Extreme Caucus of Green right. Deal and, and so forth. You've, you've got the Congressional Black Caucus, which is all hung up on seniority. Qualifications don't matter. It's who, who's been here the longest gets the key jobs. You've got the uh, moderates who beat the John Fassos, the Claudia Tennys, the Jeff Denhams, David Valadeos, Kevin Yoders. There's 35 or 40 of them that make up their, their majority where they won by less than a point. Uh, they want a middle-of-the-road agenda. They came to Congress saying, I'll work with Republicans. I'll work with the president. We'll get things done. And now they're caught up in the extremism. I don't think Pelosi is going to be able to get anything passed of any consequence because these the moderates don't want this extreme agenda, and the AOCs and the Omars of the world will never support anything that's moderate. Just wanted to uh, go back to your story. You talking about rock, walking into the wrong caucus room, and one of the things that you hear about Washington is that everything is so divisive. They're not even friends anymore. It used to be that you'd have Republicans and Democrats who'd room together uh, on Capitol Hill because you know that's the only way they could afford it. Um, yeah, now they live in their office. What do you, what do you see as, as the way back? You know, it, it, how do we get back to a, a norm where it's okay to walk in with a friend of yours who you've met from the other side of the aisle without right, so, having so it let, be an event? So let me put this to bed once and for all. We are friends. I have a lot of friends on the Democrat side. We, we sit together sometimes because there's no assigned seating. Uh, we, we walk across the street together. We joke with each other. Um, it's just on the legislative side, which is driven out of leadership, if you will, that's where things fall apart. But, you know, I was walking down the hall with John Garamendi. You see him on TV and on Fox all the time, a very outspoken person. He and I came in together. He's a friend. We walked down the aisles together. He, he basically said to me, he goes, boy, being in the majority is a lot of work. Because, see, he's only ever been in the minority. And now they're seeing that in, in the majority. They're writing the legislation. Right. They have to have meeting after meeting after meeting to herd the cats into hoping that they can get the Congressional Black Caucus, the AOC Caucus, and the moderates to agree on something, which they can't. So, I mean, it's these kind of things. When I walk the aisle, uh, you know, you know, with, with different members, we are friends. We are human beings. Uh, people that I came in, in with uh, seven years ago, like John Garamonde or or uh, some of these others, we chat, we, we, we're friendly, we just vote differently. So the, there is not animosity on, in Washington at a personal level. We are human beings, we care about each other's families. Certainly when Debbie Dingle, John Dingle died, Debbie Dingle, somebody who's a friend of mine. Uh, you know, and 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 and, because we're people and, and we care about each other as people. We just philosophically disagree about the role of government, whether government should tell us what cars to drive, what houses to live in, and so forth, or whether we have personal responsibility and personal choice. So philosophically, the role of government is what divides us. But me caring about your family, and if your child is sick or your husband passed, uh, you know, we're human beings. You know, we uh, we got a Supreme Court case right now that's looking at the census. In the budget, we saw an extra billion dollars put towards the census. We all know that there's going to be uh, there's uh, courts that have decided that maybe we don't need to know your nationality on the census. This is affecting upstate New York. Uh, the governor wants to tell us it's because of the climate that people are leaving oh, yeah. New York State, but it's obviously because of it's not friendly for business. Well, no, it is the it is the climate. It's the climate in Albany. <laughs> right. uh, it's the climate created by the downstate right. interest in Bill De Blasio and now the Democrat takeover of the Senate, where we have partial birth murder. 
but but when they're looking at uh, if they, they do another census in two years, they're going to come after a seat that's R plus eleven, and with a Democratic Senate, Democratic Assembly, this is the focus of eroding represent. What do we have in New York State? If we don't have our upstate Republicans, who's representing us? We have no one in Albany. We have uh, the the delegates downstate get destroyed all the time. What do you do if they take away two of the congressional seats from upstate New York? Well, you know, David, they really can't. They won't be able to do that just because when you look at it, they, they can't go into Canada. They can't go into Pennsylvania, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario or Vermont. When it crushes down in. Uh, we're, we're going to have two Republican representatives from Western New York because they're, they're going to probably put them all in, you know, like the two different districts. And you're going to have the Higgins district in, in Buffalo and, and now the Joe Morelli a- district in Rochester. The two seats we're going to lose will be in the central part of the state, probably like the John Faso, what we call the John Faso, Claudia Tenney seat. Because here's the data point that matters to me. We've been in a death spiral for 50 years in the state where we've been self-destructing because of Albany. We used to have 45 members of Congress, 45, when Florida had seven, 45 to seven. Today, it's 27 and 27, and now Florida's passed us. In the next census, we're likely to be at 25. They'll be at 29. You can't conceive of us going from 45 to 25 while Florida went from seven to 29, and the loss has all been upstate. When we had 45, 31 upstate, 14 in the city. Now we're at 12 in the city. Okay, went 14 to 12. But in the rest of the state now, it will have gone from 31 to 13. Oh, my God. Uh, There'll still be uh, upstate uh, House of Representatives Republicans, but we've lost the state Senate, supermajority now, all downstate. Same is true in the Assembly. Uh, The death spiral will continue. One percent of New Yorkers pay 46 percent of the state income tax. And they're the ones that are mobile. Think about technology today. I don't care what your business is. You can go to Florida, turn your computer on and direct your your operations, you know, from Florida and not be a New York resident any longer. Well, it's it's also the irony that uh, the Democrats say that this tax cut only benefits the rich. And yet it was Cuomo that was begging Trump. All the rich people in New York are leaving. Please give us some incentive to keep wealthy people in New York State. Well, which one is it? I mean, if, if, the, if the argument is the only way I can bring businesses into New York State is by reducing the tax burden, then where have you been? Well, you let, should let, all be Let's Republican. go back to the fact now that Florida has more people than us and they will have more representatives, their budget's less than half ours. Their entire go. budget is less than our budget for Medicaid. They can't make this up. Right. And let's remember, all but 100% of the Erie County property tax is a Medicaid uh, pushback from Albany, like no other state does this. If, if New York ran Medicaid like every other state, Erie County wouldn't have a property tax. It would be zero. I'm not making this stuff up. Well, when the Bills score a touchdown in Tampa Bay, there are more Bills fans there than, than, than Buccaneers fans. That's the way it works. Congressman Collins, we got to go to a break. Uh, when uh, we come back, more of hey, you. Hey, we'll keep that? on going. All right, Sounds we'll good. We'll keep doing it. All right, hard line right after this. Hardline, we've got Congressman Chris Collins in studio, New York 27. You know, we just uh, spent, you know, last week we talked about the 10-year anniversary of that horrible air disaster, 3407. You were county executive at the time. And, you know, a lot of things have happened since the crash. But I was wondering if there was a 
just a memory you have of that night as county executive when, I mean, you could, listen, you can look at a county executive and say, oh, he handled the plows really well. There was a bad storm. Uh, th- there was a problem with the water. These things happen. But when a plane falls out of the sky and 50 people, uh, we, I, we could say 51 souls, there was a pregnant woman on board, that's something that you can't ever prepare for. No, no elected official is ready for that. It was my daughter's 18th birthday, and the plane came down at 1017 at night. Uh, Greg Skabitsky, who was my commissioner of, uh, of emergency services, was on the phone with me at probably about 1030. And all I knew was the plane went down in Clarence Center about a mile and a half from my house. I just zipped out the door, uh, pulled in. There were already a couple of volunteer fire companies there. One of them just is literally two blocks down the street. Uh, and it was an inferno. Uh, the kind of sight you would see in a movie. And uh, we didn't know at the time, was it a private aircraft, a commercial airline? We knew nothing other than it was a plane, it was an inferno, and, and that's when things you know, started to, and you had all these agencies. It didn't take long before you had the NFTA, you had the FBI, you had uh, our emergency services, you had the clearance emergency services. And everyone, you know, who, who's in charge? And the answer is, Ultimately, I had to decide I was in charge. But again, I, I was being respectful of the different things until they started to stonewall the families and they wouldn't release the plane information. It was 1 a.m., so a couple hours later. We knew well by then it was a commercial flight. It was flight 34. But there were, there were families picking up their loved ones at the airport that didn't even know what Correct. had happened. So the families deserved to know. I was told not to release the information. I said, I don't work for you. I worked for the residents of Erie County and, and the families, and so I was the one at 1.01 a.m. On, on that Saturday morning then that went out and released the information so everyone knew where the flight originated, what the flight number was. It was a s- small regional aircraft. We did not know the cause. You know, it, People thought it was icing because it was an icy night. It turns out it was 100% pilot error, but at that time we didn't know. So at some point I just had to take control because somebody needed to take control. We had five different agencies and that really set the stage for the next two or three or four days. As things did play out, we found out more about the pilot. He'd flunked three three check rides. No one knew that. The co-pilot had the flu. The co-pilot had no experience in this particular plane. It was all pilot error. They had stalled the airplane. She had misset the autopilot it slowed down went into a stall mode with what they call the stick shaker neither one of them were trained on it so david the the key thing to remember here is the families who who have continued now for 10 years to fight for the memories of their loved ones lost for safety in our skies starting with uh more training hours for the co-pilot uh training in the specific aircraft a database that would have shown that this pilot flunked three check rides. But see, that never da- been higher. That database is pretty huge, though, because that allows anyone to know who's qualified for what and what you're flying, whether or not you've checked. Well, the, the airlines can access it. I don't know that it's accessible by the the general public. But no, but I'm saying that the airlines did not know before this law if you had even had. Yeah, he had flunked three check rides, and you would think regional aircraft or not, they might have said, you know, I may take a I may take a pass on this guy, who who has flunked three check rides but or they who, didn't only, know who only who uh, only flies in florida and has never been in the northeast before. so 
what the families fought for was comprehensive changes, which did occur in Congress. But we fight every day against the regional airlines, not so much the Deltas and Americans, but the regional airlines who claim because of these uh, tougher training hours and restrictions, they're having trouble hiring pilots. Well, pay them more. You know, th this co-pilot was like literally stocking shelves at a grocery store and sleeping on the floor in the airport because couldn't afford a hotel room. So the regional airlines, I said, if they have to pay a little more, and our, we pay $3 more for our ticket, but when we get in an airplane, we're now knowing we're going to land at the other end. We have not had a commercial uh, crash, uh, you know, that, that resulted in the loss of life in 10 straight years. They, we used to have every year, every single year, we'd have one or two commercial plane crashes. We haven't had one in 10 years. You know, knock on wood and anything else you can. The families keep coming to D.C. to lobby for, and we had them in front of the uh, Transportation Infrastructure Committee. This is not a Republican-Democrat issue. This is bipartisan, nonpartisan support for air safety. And American, the American public owe a debt of gratitude to these families who every year come down and help us. And while Schumer and I don't agree on much, if anything, we do agree we're not going to lessen the training hours, the database, and the other issues that resulted in plane safety. You know, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask, uh, listen, you're a member of Congress. You're, you're, we were talking about what happened uh, 10 years ago when you were county executive. But one of the things that I find really fascinating about the current county executive is there's almost a... What's a, his name? Yeah, <laughs> Um, Mark Policars. Oh, okay. There's, there's, there seems most most to, of the public probably doesn't realize that. But there seems to be a little bit uh, of bad blood there, where as a member of Congress, you're not really worried too much about what the county executive is doing. I don't hear a lot of comments coming. But I am constantly reminded that you were a county executive at one point years ago. I'm constantly reminded of the different things that you did as county executive and how they're different from the Poland Cars administration. <coughs> What is what? What's the the? How do you respond to that? Would you have uh, if if I was to ask you to handicap, if you were in the middle of a storm and the governor of New York showed up, what part of your priority list would be pulling people off the 190 and and introducing them to the governor? Would would that be something that you'd be uh, doing? No. What when uh, I was county executive, if we had an urgent situation, we would activate our uh, emergency response center, which was in in uh, Chictawaga. Uh, we would gather the appropriate people into an area where we had all the communications equipment. We could coordinate through computer technology and others and direct. I mean, the job of the CEO, county executive, is to direct the actions of others, N not to be out there, you know, driving a snowplow. You know, maybe you get, maybe that's a, a, a good, uh, you know, photo for the newspaper, but it's to direct the operations with your commissioners. In many cases, this would cross many many different uh, commissioners. It, it's to coordinate the activities, not, not to get in the snowplow. But I mean, is there, is there bad blood there? Do you guys have a good relationship? Why is it that- we, we effectively don't have a relationship. <laughs> um, I moved on, I, I'm not sure he has. I, I think right. he, he would probably, he's some, I wanted to remain county executive. I lost my reelection. Right. I, I had fixed the county in three years. I fixed it, you know, quicker than I should but have. You moved on and, but you moved on and ran for Congress and closed. won. And, and that's what My it is. focus is always looking forward. I can't speak to what, what drives him. Uh, I know I drove him crazy when I was county executive and he was comptroller, but once I lost, I said, all right, that's in, that's in the, the rear view mirror. I'm going forward and I've never looked back. And 
Are you going to help uh, campaign for whatever the Republican nominee is in Erie County? Uh, probably when, when you say help campaign. I mean, I'm just saying the appearances, whatnot. Um, haven't even thought about that. I mean, my focus We don't is, have a candidate either. My, my focus is in D.C. I, I, I am respectful of, of my role representing, you know, all 750,000 people in New York 27, which is eight counties. Uh, but with that said, you know, whether it was the sheriff in Ontario County or, or the like, I would, uh, wouldn't hesitate, you know, at, at uh, various uh, places to, have, you know, participate in a rally and so forth. And I would certainly do that. But I'm not going to be knocking doors and whatever. Right. Well, the congressman knocking doors would be, uh, that, that's not something we're used to seeing anyway, in a county executive race at least. Congressman Chris Collins, thank you so much for your time. David, appreciate it's, it. it's been uh, a blast. All right. And, well, I appreciate uh, And Jake, that. it was so nice to meet you. Likewise. Uh, Appreciate all the time. All right. We're going to jump to uh, another member of the congressional delegation here in western New York on the hotline. It is Congressman uh, Brian Higgins. Uh, Congressman Higgins, thank you for taking time today. How are you? Good, gentlemen. I'm glad to be with you. Okay. Let's talk real quick uh, about uh, national emergency. Where you know We just heard from Congressman Collins here uh, on this whole topic. Where are you uh, when it comes to the President of the United States declaring a national emergency to basically build a wall? Well, firstly, I don't think there's a national emergency. And uh, I think the Constitution, while ambiguous in certain areas, is not ambiguous in this area. Uh, Congress clearly has uh, the constitutional authority to appropriate funds. And uh, so there'll be, you know, a legal challenge, not only from Congress, but from a lot of those border communities that if there was a crisis um, would be most adversely affected. Uh, but these are the communities that will probably lead the legal challenge to the president's uh, national uh, declaration of an emergency. This is a problem. It's not a crisis. Congressman, there's almost certainly uh, going to be a legal challenge. Uh, there's a lot of news articles out there about whether that's uh, going to be ultimately successful uh, in terms of the, the administration winning out. Um, as a member of the, the majority in the House, though, what is going to be done uh, so our, our viewers or, or listeners can, can understand the process? What's going to be done in Congress going forward to, to level challenge to uh, the president's executive action? Well, I think both Republicans and Democrats in Congress are concerned. This is an issue between uh, Congress, which is, you know, the most powerful branch of the federal government, and the House, which is the most powerful branch of, of Congress. Uh, and it's a question of whether or not uh, people are going to defend the institution of Congress uh, versus the president that is, you know, declaring an emergency without a, a factual basis. I mean, you know, keep in mind, President Trump had both a Republican Senate and a Republican House for two years and failed to make a persuasive argument uh, that he needs money to build a wall. I, I think most of us uh, who have watched this uh, develop believe that it's a political strategy. He's not trying to keep people out. He's trying to keep his political base in. But the very people that, you know, he seems to be – the president seems to be afraid of the wrong people. You know, you've you've heard about Sean Hannity. You've heard about Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter uh, uh, called the president an idiot uh, the other day. Uh, so, uh, you know, we should get beyond uh, the, the, the politics of it and just deal with – uh, what's at hand here? And, and are there better ways to secure the border? Certainly. Uh, previous administrations have done it, both Republican and, and Repub Republican and Democratic. And uh, this president 
needs to use the considerable resources he's been given by Congress. There's there's a doubling of the number of border agents in the last 10 years. Uh, the, the president, you know, demonstrating uh, presidential leadership should marshal the resources of the federal government to better manage a problem. But I don't think anybody but him is calling this a crisis. And uh, so I, I, I just think that, you know, that's my view of it. Well, we're talking with Congressman Brian Higgins. That's the first time I've ever heard him quoting Ann Coulter. So it's the first time for everything. But he's absolutely right. Ann Coulter, a lot of the Republican base are saying that he's not aggressive enough. Now, when you look at all of these different things, uh, you had a Republican House that didn't uh, wasn't able to get border, border wall spending through the Senate. But now we're over on some of the key issues that we've really heard for the last two, three years with the Democratic Party. Nancy Pelosi wants a clean bill for the Dreamers, for DACA. What are the uh, looking at the schedule and all these bills that are coming up? Is there a possibility that a clean bill goes through for the Dreamers that's not connected somehow to either the border wall or the budget? I don't know. But I, what I do know is previously, you know, the, the Dreamers and a path to legal citizenship has been on the table. And, and look, like anything else, you've got 435 members of Congress. Everybody can't have their own way. Uh, a lot of what results from Congress, it's not clean, it's not efficient, uh, as it should be, is, is typically a compromise. Uh, so that clearly has been on the table. Uh, and members of Congress have pushed for that. Uh, so there was always an opportunity. And, and to be truthful, if you look at the history of this thing, the most recent history, the president had a better deal back in December with more money for border security. But, you know, my question is this. Look, what country uh, has done border security right? I think Israel has. I mean, they are uh, they are in a very hostile neighborhood and they have uh, smart fencing, which uses the, 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 the newest technology uh, to effectively manage a border where that country is is subject to assault uh, on on all of its borders. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, rarely have I heard a persuasive argument that a wall is the best means of border security. Now, Congressman uh, Higgins, when you hear members, and again, we're talking about Congress, people running for president, uh, there there's 18 people on the Democratic side, everyone's jockeying for a position, and we know that positions evolve over a time when a year goes through in a presidential campaign. So we don't put a lot of weight into what we're hearing now from people running for president. But when you look at the more moderate position of the Democratic Party, and there are moderates that defeated Republicans with moderate, you know, uh, political ideology. When you hear other people talking about not only being against a border wall, but but taking down existing border walls, is that pretty much just 2020 jockeying for position, or is that a real policy uh, stand that you're hearing in the Democratic caucus? I don't know. I mean, I think people have, you know, invoked the need to secure the border, but that means different things to different people. Um, as I said, Congress doubled the number of Border Patrol agents. It's the largest uh, federal law enforcement agency in America. Uh, most people think uh, that, you know, uh, Border Patrol agents, they're professional law enforcement uh, officials uh, that are well-trained, and that's the best means to uh, secure the border. You know, I have a, 
a colleague, uh, Will Hurd, uh, who was a, a CIA agent prior to running for Congress. Uh, he is a Republican uh, that represents uh, a, a, a district along the southern border, and he has said uh, repeatedly that a, a wall is the most expensive but least effective means of, of border security. So I think, look, good minds, uh, uh, reasonable people can come together toward the goal uh, of achieving the objective of securing the border. But uh, I don't, you know, again, I don't think the president has made a persuasive argument to anybody, including and especially Republicans uh, in the House or Senate, that a wall is the best means to achieve that. Uh, Congressman Higgins, uh, we've heard a lot of news about the Amazon jobs in Queens and and leaving Queens and the uh, small number of uh, people in Congress, uh, of state senator, that really were pushing against Amazon. If there was an opportunity for Amazon to bring 25,000 jobs into your district, would I mean, are you on the phone right now in, in any attempt to try to bring that to Western New York? Do we know where Amazon's you know, is standing, is there any interest at all in maybe staying in the state but but moving upstate? Well, there's a place called Niagara Falls, uh, which is in close proximity to uh, Canada, which is important to Amazon. Uh, I have had some preliminary discussions, not with company officials, uh, about a strategy to try to uh, reactivate, if you will, those financial incentives toward the goal. Uh, of getting uh, Amazon to consider a place like Niagara Falls. There's a lot of land that's available. Uh, It's a great location. Uh, Niagara Falls is a great city that is, I think, underperforming given its uh, extraordinary uh, location and extraordinary uh, uh, benefits uh, to a company like Amazon. Congressman, can we keep you uh, into the break? Do you have time? Sure. I want to give you as much time as we possibly can. Congressman Brian Higgins, New York 26. We're going to keep him on hold. We'll take your calls at 803-0930, the Republican line, 644-9875, the Democratic line. We've got Dr. Jacob Nyheisel here from the University of Buffalo. We'll be back with more Congressman Brian Higgins after this break. It's Hardline. Welcome back to Hardline. We've got Congressman Brian Higgins uh, on the uh, line with us, we also are here with uh, Dr. Jacob Nyheisel from the University of Buffalo. Uh, Congressman Higgins, thank you for your time. I'm glad to be with you. You know, sir, you know, you uh, have, have made a career in Washington and around the district, and you've never been regarded as a lightning rod or polarizing uh, as your time in Congress. I think that's a great compliment to your legacy and to what you've done in Washington, D.C. When you look at You know, when freshmen come to Washington, everyone wants to make a name for themselves. It's a totally different generation uh, than when you uh, came up into politics. When you look at some of the attention uh, that this freshman Democratic class is getting, is that helpful to to you? Is it uh, something that you just have to endure? Uh, How is that affecting the entire caucus when freshman Democrats are now, you know, being looked to their Twitter accounts? It almost appears that they're leading, you know, the the Democratic Party right now, and they've been in office for less than a month. Well, whatever other members of Congress do, that's their business. It's not mine. And uh, I just have a particular way about uh, which I, you know, go toward representing my community. And uh, I try to be thoughtful. I try to be well-informed. I know that I don't have all the answers. Most political debates are about partial truths. We need people that disagree with us to correct for our own errors. Uh, So I just think that, um, uh, you know, a lot of media attention is being 
placed on, on those individuals. Uh, look, I think it's healthy that people, uh, as I said, you have 435 members of Congress. You have very different views. You have very different styles. Uh, that's both the challenge but also the strength uh, of the United States Congress. You know, there's a reason why the Constitution, uh, Article One, is reserved for Congress, because it's the most powerful and influential branch of government. And I think over the last couple of de- decades, it's been marginalized uh, under both Republican presidents and Democratic presidents. And what I do like is that, you know, Congress is reasserting uh, its constitutional authority toward the goal of making laws and making budgets. Uh, we have a long way to go, but I think it's trending in the right direction. I think it's a, a great commentary, uh, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you see executive power going forward and, and how Congress might uh, be able to, to level challenge to that. I mean, uh, it seems like it's been quite some time where Congress has been willing to, to cede authority to the chief executive. Uh, do you really think that now is a, a time where Congress is, is going to up the ante and, and really uh, get into the idea that uh, they were placed there first in the Constitution for a reason? Well, yeah, I think you've seen that over the past six weeks, uh, and I think it's good that you have a divided government. Uh, I think uh, the, the the nation and the economy performs well under a divided government. Uh, too much power central, uh, centered in one party I don't think is good at all, uh, whether it's Democratic or, or Republican. So I think uh, reasserting uh, the constitutional authority that Congress has, uh, I'm, you know, as I said previously, uh, Congress is the most powerful branch of government, federal government. Uh, the House is the most powerful branch of Congress, and I serve on the House Ways and Means Committee, which is arguably the most powerful and influential committee in the House of Representatives. Uh, that comes with a lot of responsibility, but a lot of potential to make a trillion-dollar infrastructure uh, investment uh, to create real jobs for Americans that uh, are looking uh, for work in the construction trades, supply the materials industries. Uh, we helped rebuild Buffalo's waterfront. Uh, with federal earmarks and the New York Power Authority <clears throat> settlement, which was a, a federal license that the Power Authority was seeking, that would not have occurred if, if you know, uh, that if I didn't use the influence that I had uh, in Congress. So it's finding conventional ways to exert your authority uh, through your constitutional authority, uh, but it's also uh, you know finding unconventional ways like uh, a New York Power Authority settlement that brought. Uh, $300 million of investment to Buffalo's waterfront, which, you know, leveraged uh, a lot of private sector investment. And that model is still playing out each and every day uh, along the water's edge in Buffalo. I think that's a great answer. Uh, if I may talk a little bit more, we We've been talking about institutions here, right, the Article One powers. But uh, to get back to the idea that, that David was talking about with respect to, you know, the, the freshmen in the Democratic caucus seem to really be pulling some of the oxygen out of the, the overall conversation. Uh, let's talk just a little bit about norms. You know, when you first got into Congress, what were the, the norms for a, for a freshman member? And have you seen those evolve over time? Yeah, I've been both in the, the minority uh, and, and in a majority. It's given me an interesting perspective. Um, I serve on the House Ways and Means Committee, which is a very prestigious committee. I'm honored to be there. Um, and I've served with extraordinary people, both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Tom Reynolds, I'll tell you, when he was in Congress, he was a real influential guy. And he's, you know, among uh, the best politicians. I mean this in the best sense of the word uh, that, you know, Congress had. Uh, so you learn from, from everybody, regardless of their party affiliation or 
you know, ideological uh, uh, influence. Uh, but, you know, it just I, I think the job changes. You know, my focus has always been Buffalo and Western New York, but I've always had a, a, a profound uh, uh, interest in, in foreign affairs. Uh, I traveled to Iraq and Afghanistan many, many times. Uh, I learn a lot uh, when I'm in, on those trips. Uh, I still have a lot to learn. In fact, you know, David Bellavia, um, I'm very familiar with your book. I've not read it, House to House. Uh, but there's a guy who I used to spend a lot of time with in, in Washington by the name of Thomas Ricks. Uh, and he was with the Center for New American Security, along with Andrew Exum and, and John Nagel, who was really the, you know, the author of the counterinsurgency strategy. But Ricks wrote uh, Fiasco, The Gamble. He just wrote a biography, a dual biography on Winston Churchill uh, and George Orwell. But he uh, has high, high praise uh, for David Bellaby's book, House to House. Uh, I think... David, you were an Army sergeant down in uh, Fallujah. Yes, sir. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. You know, you opened the door to uh, foreign policy, and I, and I appreciate you doing that. You know, it, it's it's interesting when you look at the president's uh, take on foreign policy because it's it's very different than what we saw with previous uh, with the Bush administration. There there seemed to be a a neoconservative look at, at at American adventurism in in the Middle East. Uh, Donald Trump's uh, approach to the Middle East is more similar, I think, that to Barack Obama's approach, where you know we have a lot of things to focus here, uh, but there still has to be a reasonable way that we can remove a footprint that, to be honest, we've spent 17 years in Afghanistan creating that sort of footprint. What do you see the future of? It's it's a delicate balance because, you know, you don't want to create a vacuum, but it, it seems that that vacuum will be created no matter what when American uh, boots on the ground leave. Well, I have a different view. I think we should be nation-building at home. Uh, the president had said that we spent uh, $7 trillion in our efforts in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and, and Syria. Uh, I think that money would have been better spent in America, or at least the vast majority of it. Uh, and here's just you know my simple take on uh, three places that I've, I've been to. Uh, in Syria, you know, uh, you've got uh, Bashir al-Assad, who is a uh, Alawite, which is a variant of, of Shia, um, it, it's it's a question of it's you know he's he's a bad guy, but the 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 the, the militias that make up the resistance to him uh, are made up of Al Qaeda affiliates, and so it's going from bad to worse. In Iraq, I think we took out a very bad uh, Sunni by the name of uh, Saddam Hussein. I think we put in a very bad Shia by the name of Nouriel Maliki. And today, despite you know having lost a lot of American lives, and David, you know that better than anybody. Um, uh, Iran has more influence in Iraq today than the United States has. Um, in Afghanistan, uh, spent time there meeting with uh, former President um, Hamid Karzai. Uh, the CIA, you know, had to pay a bribe uh, to the former president's brother, Wally uh, 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 Karzai, uh, down in uh, uh, Hamid uh, uh, province and Kandahar province uh, to protect. American soldiers who were fighting for their freedom. And I think uh, America gets played in these places. And I think that, uh, you know, sometimes countries have to go through a civil war uh, to, to, you know, get it right. And this country did, America. Uh, it's not ideal, but if you can't resolve your differences at the bargaining table, then you're going you're, you're gonna to 
resolve your differences in the killing fields, and I just don't think that America has any place there. Congressman Higgins, is it is it impossible to explain to the American people that there are such things as benevolent dictators? It, it seems to be a very complicated—I mean, you just brought up four— you know, issues that are all true. I mean, everything you said is completely factual, but it's so confusing to average Americans that just, they want a job. They they want to make sure that, you know, everything is squared away at on the home front. A- and is it almost to the point where we just have to say, you know what, if, if the people decide that they want leaders that don't give constitutional rights or freedoms and liberties, if it works for them, it's really none of our business. Is, is that is that a fair assessment? Well, we yes, I think we have a tendency to look at everything through you know a Western prism, uh, an American prism, and I don't think it's uh, entirely accurate. You know, the fact of the matter is, you know, in in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, they're still battling, and even in Syria, about who the rightful successor is to the Prophet Muhammad. Is it? Uh, Shias believe one thing, Sunnis believe another. Uh, they cannot coexist. That's where all the conflict is today in the Middle East. But think about this for a second. In the entire Middle East, all the countries there, the population there is about 300 million people, nearly equivalent to that of the United States. If you take oil off the table, uh, the Middle East in its entirety exports to the rest of wor- the world uh, an amount uh, 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 compared to Finland, uh, a country of 5 million people. Uh, so, you know, what are we doing over there, really? And if there are, if there is no political center in Iraq, Afghanistan, in Syria, uh, there are only sides. And when we intervene in those places, we're viewed as taking a side, fair or unfair. But that's, it really doesn't matter how we view it. It matters, I think, more how they view it. I think it's a really interesting take uh one of the things in my world, uh, the academic world, the uh, topic that gets brought up is uh, an old thesis about the, the class of civilizations and how, you know, that the, after the, the Cold War, the next big conflict was going to be Middle East and it was going to be a conflict uh, of ideology. And what you seem to be saying is that really we probably need to, to reevaluate some of those undercurrents, some of which probably undergirded more of a, a neocon view on, on foreign conflict. Um, and so, you know, what is the, the answer going forward where it's the United States as a, as a great power say, well, you know, we're not in the, the business of regime change. We're really not in the business of this ideological war and really limit ourselves and limit our role to, to more discrete conflicts and more discrete things that, that we can do to, to shape our interest closer to home. Yeah, we, we do have a role in the United States. It's an extraordinary uh, influence in the world, uh, uh, potentially and in reality. And I point to Northern Ireland. You know, in my in my lifetime, I, I studied and taught Anglo-Irish history. Um, but in my lifetime, that was a conflict that was viewed as, you know, it, 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 it couldn't be resolved uh, between Catholics and Protestants in, in, in Northern Ireland. And both uh, President Clinton, uh, United States President, and then uh, British Prime Minister Tony Blair basically pushed the sides together and said, you got to do two things. One, one, you have to, uh, you have to denounce violence. Uh, that was the history of both the Irish Republican Army and the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland that represented the Protestants. So they publicly denounced violence, and then they had to give up their arms, literally. And those arms were destroyed, uh, observed by an international tribunal. That was the entry price 
you get to the negotiating table. And while the situation in Northern Ireland is imperfect today, that would not have been accomplished without the United States. You know, uh, 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 Congressman Higgins, we, we started this whole thing talking about, you know, the role of the House of Representatives, the role of the legislative branch. And, you know, we, we haven't voted for a war since World War Two. And you're you're uh, I believe you bring up an excellent point of that. This has been eroded really by, you know, Republicans and Democrats. If we get to a, a reset button and we get back to what the founders originally intended, uh, does that mean that we hit the reset button on pretty much every executive uh, order that, I mean, if we had a flu epidemic, if we had, you know, we have uh, executive orders and national emergencies on things like you know, the diamond trade and and different conflicts that create all over the world. There has to be a happy medium where we can keep existing national emergencies uh, ongoing and still find common ground on things like border security. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, if you look at the history of the presidency, there are, you know, shining examples of both Republican presidents and Democratic presidents using the tools that they have available to them uh, to get Congress to do the right thing, even when sometimes Congress was prepared not to do the right thing. Uh, that's what that's the nobility of politics. It's sitting in a room with people that you, you, you don't agree with, that you may not even like, and coming out with some kind of conclusion uh, that's good for the country. I think we've lost that vision a little bit. I'd like to get back to it. And I think, you know, we have a constitution for a reason. It wasn't to promote, unfortunately, uh, efficiency. It was to promote liberty. And that's why we have checks and balances. And that's why uh, each branch of government exercises their constitutional authority. And then the other branch of government, like the executive, Congress takes action on something, the president can veto it. If Congress doesn't like what the president vetoed, it goes back to Congress. It can be overridden. Uh, but that's a, you know, it's a, that's a big challenge to get the votes to override two-thirds in both the House and the Senate. But I think our system of government was well set up. I think sometimes it doesn't function uh, to its full potential. And uh, shift gears just a little bit here, uh, Congressman, to talk about uh, the census. Uh, obviously, that's been a budget line of, of some uh, import here lately, and there was a, a bit of a, a dust-up not too long ago to uh, talk about uh, whether or not there should be a, a question on the census regarding citizenship. But uh, speaking specifically with respect to, to Western New York and, and the potential for New York as a, as a state to lose some representation, perhaps, in, in the next uh, census, uh, how do you see that unfolding in terms of you know, how you continue to represent Western New York and, and really the, the power Western New York holds in a, not just a state level, but also in the, the national political scene? Yeah. Uh, well, look, I mean, obviously, there's strength in numbers, uh, particularly when it comes to congressional representation. Uh, New York had a lot more representatives than it currently does, and it's going to have less uh, after the next census uh, by, by you know, most estimates, probably two fewer uh, members of Congress. Here's what I do know. In the last 10 years, uh, the population of young Buffalo, uh, for the first time in 40 years, is increasing, not decreasing. Uh, Buffalo has been the talk of the nation. New York Times, The Economist magazine, The Boston Globe 
are all extolling the virtues uh, of the new Buffalo. Uh, our economy, our economy has diversified. We're away from heavy manufacturing and into uh, financial services, and and you know we we offer something to younger people who once left because they had to and are now coming back because they want to. Uh, and I think we have to continue that, uh, you know. And I think that's. That's where I see my role. It's always pushing the limits of what is possible. Uh, I think Buffalo and Western New York has extraordinary potential. I think we're doing much better than we have uh, in the past uh, 30, 40 years, but I think we can do much better, uh, and that's where my focus is. You know, when we finally wrap this up, uh, Congressman Higginson, I appreciate your time. Uh, When you look uh, moving forward, you know, a lot of people want to, it seems that this new Green Deal has become almost a gotcha. Like, do you agree with it? Do you, are you for banning airplanes? It's, it's, It's being used almost as a cudgel to find people and put them in a box. But you've been very outspoken with your, the way you, you see the environment, the way you see the threats. Uh, and, and there is always compromise. You're always talking in, in terms of we can get over this. This great experiment can keep. We can agree. We, we have disagreements, but there's a way that we can find a middle ground. Has, if there's any positive that you could put on this new Green Deal, is it that we can have a conversation about, well, okay, you don't like this, but at least there's something that we could find you know, common ground in down the road? Yeah. First of all, the, the Green New Deal is a resolution. There's no force of law behind it. There's no force of budget behind it. It is what I would characterize as aspirational. Uh, there are a lot of good aspects in there. And I'll give you just an example as it relates to Buffalo. You know, we brought in about $100 million to clean up the Buffalo River. Uh, companies, Buffalo Color, for example, used to just dump their toxic chemicals in the water. And those chemicals settled on the, on the ground and we had, or, or into the um, uh, the, the, the base of the river, and we had what referred to as dead zones. Uh, aquatic life could not survive in there. Um, but today in Buffalo, we still have what's referred to as combined sewer overflows, and that is a sewer system that was built over 100 years ago that still dumps uh, a lot of junk uh, into the Buffalo River. A Green New Deal would focus on things like that, water systems, sewer systems, uh, to bring them to a higher level of efficiency and effectiveness. So you know, I want to continue to try to bring a lot of money to continue to transition the Buffalo River away from its heavy industrial use to to recreational purposes because it adds tremendously to the quality of life. But at the same time, we have to fix uh, those infrastructure issues, uh, which will keep uh, the, the the river clean. So I think there's a lot of good things in there. Look, it's going to be controversial, but I think it was it's controversial uh, by design because what is it stimulating? stimulating discussion that we're having today about it, uh, without which we wouldn't be having this discussion. Congressman Higgins, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you coming on Harline. Thank you, gentlemen. Take All right. That was Congressman Brian Higgins. Dr. Nyheisel, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Always uh, a good time. We'll be back next week, same st- time, same station. Up next is Meet the Press. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.